Thank you for the truths of your word. I pray that you will give us understanding and give us wisdom and how we apply it in our own lives, Lord. In your name, amen. Well, I thought I'd give a little medical advice. I don't usually do that, but this is for uh, many of you women, most of whom experience this, but some of you have not. So I wanted to give you a heads up um, on how to handle and prepare for your first mammogram. So... Many women are afraid of their first mammogram, but there really is no need to worry at all. By taking a few minutes each day for a week preceding the exam and doing the following practice exercises, you'll be totally prepared uh, and be the best that you can be for this if you just do these exercises in your own home. So exercise one is open your refrigerator door and insert one breast between the door and the box frame. Have one of your strongest friends slam the door shut as hard as possible and lean on the door for good measure. Hold the position for five seconds. And of course, hold your breath, right? Repeat again. Then exercise two is visit your garage at 3 a.m. when the temperature of the cement floor is just perfect. Take off all your clothes and lie comfortably on the floor with one breast wedged under the rear tire of the car. Ask a friend to slowly back up the car until your breast is sufficiently chilled and flattened. Turn over and repeat for the other breast. And then the third exercise is fries, uh, freeze rather two metal bookends overnight, um, strip to the waist, and then invite a stranger into the room, someone who is familiar with x-ray techniques, and press the bookends against one of your breasts. Smash the bookends together as hard as you can. Set an appointment with the stranger to meet and do it again next year. So that's your preparation should you haven't had one yet. Well, I believe we've benefited much from our study in the first study of the uh, first letter, rather, of Paul's letter to Thessalonians. And it's as if we're reading their mail. But this mail is the inspired word of God, and it's meant for every believer of every age that we would learn and benefit from. So as you recall, this church was born in the midst of persecution, and it only increased as time went on. So persecution was certainly nothing new to them. But in the midst of their suffering, a letter had arrived that claimed to be from Paul. We'll see in chapter 2, verse 2. And that letter was a forgery that said the day of the Lord had already started, and they found themselves now living in the tribulation. And since they did find themselves enduring intense persecution, it was easy to think that maybe they were in a tribulation period. Because of this forged letter, people became fearful. Others decided, hey, I'm going to quit my job. I'm just going to go sit and wait for the Lord to come back. And so, with this being the situation, we understand then the need that Paul had to write them a second letter. He wants to help them overcome problems that they were facing. In chapter 1, he wants to encourage them. In chapter 2, he's going to give us further explanation about the tribulation, and he assures them it has not yet happened. And finally, he will deal with the burden they faced having lazy members of their church who now refuse to work. So it's likely that the second letter was written only some months after the first letter. And the emphasis in the first letter we saw was the rapture of the church. And then next time we meet will be the focus on the end of the tribulation and Christ's return. 
So Paul begins with his greeting, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul greets his church the same way he greeted them in his first letter. He identifies himself and his companions, Silvanus and Timothy, who they knew well. And there's no need for him in this letter to try to convince them of his apostolic authority. They understood that. There was no threat about that with him and with this church. And Paul says, grace and peace to you from God the Father and Jesus Christ. The only true source of grace, which is God's undeserved favor, and the only true source of peace is possible by faith in the payment that Jesus' death on the cross was for an individual's sin. And only through coming to God the Father on the merits of Jesus can one end that separation that we all are born with because of our sins, separated from God. And when we put our faith in Jesus, we experience grace, God's undeserved favor, and peace of God in our lives because now we're at peace with God God instead of being at war with him, and we can know his internal peace. Remember, these believers were under intense persecution and could be easily discouraged. So Paul's going to remind them and us by way of application that even in the midst of trials and difficulty, we can still experience peace because of the grace of God at work in our hearts and our lives. So Paul commends these believers. He says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as it's only fitting because your faith is greatly enlarged. Wouldn't that be great to have that written about you? And your love for each other, each one of you toward one another, grows even greater. Therefore, we ourselves to speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. And I'll stop there and pick up when we get to that verse 5. So persecution, we can see develop spiritual growth. The first thing Paul does in this letter is encourage them and to say how thankful he is for all of them. Their faith was greatly enlarged and their love for each other was growing even greater. Paul is truly grateful to God for them. He says we ought always to give thanks. And this word ought was a word used for paying a debt. Paul felt indebted to God, so he continually thanked God for what God was doing in their lives in answer to his prayers. God had answered his prayer, remember, from the first letter that they would grow and abound in their faith still more and more, and that's what was happening. They may not have realized it, but their enlarged faith was likely the result of the persecution that they were enduring because that often is the cause of a faith to grow. That is the purpose and outcome of trials and struggles God brings in our lives is to help us grow in our faith. And certainly, it's not pleasant to go through suffering, It's not pleasant to face trials or persecution, but that is what God uses to enlarge our faith. Many times the Lord has to take us outside of our comfort zone to show us our need to depend on him alone. When all is well in our life, you know what? It's easier to get our priorities out of whack and out of order and spend less time in the word, less time in prayer, and more focused on things that really are rather irrelevant. As easy, an easy life can lead to a shallow faith. As Spurgeon once said, trials teach us what we are. They dig up the soil and let us see what we are made of. Intense trials in this life usually develop our prayer life as well as get us hungering for more and more of God's word because we need it to survive as our anchor. 
There are so many believers around the world right now today that live in countries of constant persecution, yet they stay strong and grow in their commitment to stay true to the Lord, even at great risk to themselves and to their families. Now, we're not told the specific way that these Thessalonians were suffering with persecution, but we do know from history that the first Gentile martyrs were from this city. They refused to bow the knee before a statue of Caesar to worship it, and they were killed for this. Paul was so thankful to God for answered prayer that he, he expresses thankfulness for their increased love as well that they had for each other. We see here that when persecution comes, God uses it to increase concern for one another, not just for yourself and your own safety. A suffering church that is trusting God will be a loving church that reaches out to one another. If you have ever been on a short-term missions trip where you experienced some real spiritual warfare or opposition, you know that there is a really special bond that takes place with the people you're with on that trip because you've suffered something together. In verse 4, because of their growth in love and in faith, Paul often spoke highly of them to others because they were such a great role model to follow. They had such a great testimony because of their steadfastness and faith. God allows difficulties and suffering to the lives of his children for the benefit of others seeing how you respond. Seeing firsthand that God can sustain, he does give grace to his own. How often have unbelievers been drawn to the Lord because of the testimony they've watched of a believer in intense suffering who suffered well before them? Well, persecution, let me go back to verse 5. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you'll be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from his glory and his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. So they would indeed be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which they were suffering. In the midst of all this persecution, it's easy to wonder where God is and if he really cares. The enemy of our soul is always there to tempt, to tempt believers to think God's not hearing your cry for help. He's abandoned his own. All believers need to be reminded that God has not forgotten us. The righteous never suffer in vain. In a message that became a book from Elizabeth Elliot, I've mentioned it before, it's titled Suffering is Never for Nothing. She speaks of her many experiences of suffering, I mean, her husband being speared to death in Ecuador is just one of many, many of her sufferings. But she wrote this, The deepest things that I have learned in my own life have come from the deepest suffering. And out of the deepest waters and the hottest fires have come the deepest things that I know about God. It has been out of that very measure of pain that has come the unshakable conviction that God is love. End of quote. Well, these believers endured trouble and suffering with great perseverance and courage. They continued to have hope in the midst of difficulty. They didn't renounce their faith. They didn't abandon their hope. 
They understood that God is good. He has a purpose in, and he has purpose for all his ways. And they're usually, as we've all found out, not our ways, not our thoughts. Their suffering was not in vain. Those inflicting harm on them would be dealt with by God in the future. As verse 5 begins, this is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment. God permitted these believers to be persecuted, but he will indeed judge the guilty in the future. God is a righteous judge. And though it may seem that the guilty are getting away with great evil in the present, there is a payday someday. Paul continues to encourage them by saying in verse 5 that you'll be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. So there was a great assurance for believers when, when they're persecuted and counted worthy of the kingdom of God that they are suffering for. Paul's not saying that suffering makes a person worthy of heaven. No one earns heaven by how much they suffer on this earth or by anything else that they do. But how we handle suffering indicates whether we have been made fit for heaven by Jesus. Only true believers continue with Christ when persecution hits. If the word of God has never taken root in someone's heart, according to the parable that Jesus gave about the soils of the heart, that he mentioned when persecution or trials come, they're just gone. Persecution proves God's judgment is righteous because it proves he will punish all persecutors and that those being persecuted are the ones who will escape judgment. Persecution produces steadfast endurance in the life of a believer, reminding them that judgment is sure to come one day, and all the injustices will finally be set right. There are thousands of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ right now in horrific prisons around the world. If you keep up with Voice of the Martyrs, there have been uh, prisoners I've been following for a decade who have been 20 years. Families hurt nothing. Arrested illegally, no trial. Many of them in Eritrea, next to Ethiopia, are in shipping containers for their makeshift prisons, stuck in there with multiple people, people out of their mind. They experience uh, torture, no medical care, horrible conditions, and families just don't even know if they're alive. Some of these guys I've been watching for years, they're older, and they've been 20 years, so I don't, nobody knows if they're alive even. We have no idea of the extent of persecution that's going to come to this country just for standing up for what the truth of Scripture say. Our hope is in the God who is sovereign, holy, and just. And for all believers who suffer with various trials, the truth is we have hope. As Spurgeon also said, I love this quote, quote, when you go through a trial, the sovereignty of God is the pillow on which you lay your head. Paul wants these believers to know that God will one day balance the scales of justice. He will repay the persecutors with judgment and bring relief to the persecuted. And that's his point in verse 7. God will give relief to you who are afflicted when Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire. This will be a time of justice. God will at last display his divine majesty and his indignation against sin. Justice may not prevail right now in our world, but in the future, God will give the cruel and harsh persecutors exactly what they dealt out to believers. The relief he will bring to believers means relief from the tension, having a picture of loosening or relaxing a bowstring. 
And when will this finally take place? Verse 8 tells us, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So those who do not know God would be the unbelieving Gentiles who have never heard of Christ but are still responsible, according to Romans 1 through 3, for their sin because they didn't respond to the light around them, their inner conscience and creation. The second group who don't obey the gospel are the Gentiles and Jews who have heard the gospel but refuse to submit to it. Dealing out retribution is not the same thing as revenge. God doesn't have personal grudges. Vengeance is for the purpose of satisfying God's holy justice and law. God doesn't get back at sinners. In truth, he's actually done everything possible for them to come to him for salvation, and yet they refuse. He must judge them to be consistent with his holiness and his justice, and he will give full punishment. God alone is qualified to do this because only God can look into people's hearts and know what's inside. Verse 9 makes it clear that they will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from his glory forever. This does not mean annihilation. Rather, it's eternal, lasting, forever. This word destruction doesn't mean they stop existing, but to lose, rather, everything that makes existing worthwhile. The thought here is eternal ruin, being banished forever and ever from God's presence. All who refuse to live in fellowship with Christ now will live eternally in that condition, separated from his glory and his presence. I hope that it breaks your heart. I hope that it's very sobering to think about this because these verses describe the future of everyone who dies not in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Eternity with the consciousness of physical pain and separation from God, separation from his beauty, his glory, his power, shut out forever, all alone in outer darkness forever. My hope and prayer is that there's no one listening here who would end up in this place. God has made a way for us to be right with him through the death of Jesus on the cross as the payment for our personal sins that have offended a holy God. When we realize how wicked and evil we really are, and only people who realize that can be saved, we come to him broken over our sin. By faith, then, we are forgiven and given a new heart, so he enables us to walk in obedience to him. This means that no matter then what trials or persecutions may come to us, we are his child with a future home with him in glory. So no matter what someone may do to us or against us, the worst that can happen is death, but that would just be a quicker trip home to glory. Paul is writing this letter to the Thessalonians, and he himself had once been a persecutor. But God gave him understanding of who Jesus is. He repented, and then instead of being the persecutor, he is the one who is the persecuted continuously for his faith in Jesus. So what hope we have because of Jesus? What a future we have in his presence one day. What a contrast to the future of those who refuse to surrender their lives to the one true God. Verse 10, persecution provides an opportunity for God to be glorified. When he comes, Jesus will be glorified in, in his believers in that day. When he comes back with his holy ones. They will be absolutely pure, and his glory will be seen in, in, in them. That's why Paul wrote in Romans 8, 18, and 19, For I consider 
that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For believers who have died or have been raptured at this point in the future, they will be returning with Christ to earth, according to Revelation 19.14, joining the saints who are still alive on the earth, who will then enter the millennial kingdom. It would seem at the time of Christ's return, uh, at the end of the tribulation, that tribulation saints who have been put to death for their faith, as well as Old Testament saints who have been with the Lord since their deaths, will be raised and fully glorified to join this army of believers all coming down from heaven to earth. The believers on earth are going to marvel as they see this army of glorified saints. The Thessalonians had no reason to fear that they would miss out on anything. They would be among the glorified saints coming back with Jesus because they had believed the gospel message brought to them by Paul, Silas, and Timothy. So in light of this truth, we need not live in despair or sorrow because of the pain of this life, because it is temporary. It will come to an end. Verses 11 and 12. To to this end also we pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power. I'll stop there. Paul said he prayed for them always that God would make them worthy of their calling. Again, Paul prays for these believers. He believed that God answered prayer. And you know what? Prayer changes things because God commands us to pray. And even though he is absolutely sovereign over all things, he has chosen amazingly the means of prayers from his people to be the thing that moves his arm. That's what changes things the prayers of his saints. And he is glorified as he answers the prayers of his own. And Paul prayed for their worthiness. It's amazing that God takes such unworthy sinners, worthy really of only of death, and makes them worthy by giving them his righteousness. In their present situation, God had called them in grace and love, and Paul prayed that they would live up to that calling. The trials that they were facing revealed what they were made of. And when we have our faith tried, we reveal our worth. God is the one who makes us valuable as he takes us through trials and helps us endure. He makes us worthy of our calling, often by means of bringing suffering and persecution into our lives. Paul also prayed that they would fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power. The thought is that they would accomplish or complete the work God gave them to do. Paul knew their faith was real because it produced the works we read about in the first chapter of the first letter. Yet he challenged them to have their work of faith increase even more, in more power so that there would be even more righteous deeds in their lives. Our character is revealed by the way we act, the way we speak, our conduct. He wanted for them, and he wants for you and me, to live lives of obedience and service as we trust him, come what may. The work of faith is with power that comes only from the indwelling Holy Spirit. Our daily life and testimony needs to be an example of what grace can do in the life of God's child. We are to be a living illustration of God's grace and his power. And why did Paul pray this way? He says, so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul's focus here in his prayer is that the name of the Lord would be exalted and honored and glorified. 
And as we serve him here and honor him with our behavior in our daily lives, there will be eternal rewards in glory. And the only way any of us are capable of giving glory to Jesus is through the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation is a gift given to us by the grace of God and being able to live for him and glorify him in our life is a gift as well. It means we die to ourselves so that we live for his glory. Paul has gone to great lengths to encourage these believers and by way of application, you and I, so that when we suffer, we recognize this is the norm because we're living in a place that is not our home. This world and its system of thinking is not where we belong. And while we're here, we have the opportunity to grow in our faith, to be a witness for him to those who need to hear the truth. And in doing so, we give glory to the Lord. Someday, justice will prevail. People will be held accountable for their actions and the things that they've done. But we have a great hope and rest in our future, complete relief from all the heartache in this world. So ladies, we need to be, like the Thessalonians, praying for each other to be strong in the meantime, and that strength can only come from the Lord. I hope the reminder that we've seen of the impending judgment for all who reject Jesus is a sober reminder that will compel you and I to stop being afraid to speak up for Jesus. Why is it we're so afraid? What are they going to think of me? Does that really matter? <laughs> really? I don't think so. We need to stop fearing that and start thinking about the eternal destiny, especially of people that we know and love. And speak boldly for our great God and Savior who has given his life for us. So I hope that you're someone who thinks of others when the trials of life come alongside others in the church you're a part of to bring encouragement and support. That's what Paul did with these believers. And that's what they did with one another. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this chapter. And I just thank you for the things you've allowed us to see, things that are coming, things that we need to be aware of and implement in our lives. And I do pray you would help each of us to have a greater burden for those who don't know you, that we would be just more bold to make conversations go in the direction of talking about spiritual truth. I know we can talk so easily about the lack of rain or politics or anything, but why do we not speak up for you? I pray you'll give us a greater boldness and stop fearing what people say. In Jesus' name, amen.